Good evening, and welcome to the December 2018 edition of Outbeat News in Depth. I'm Greg Moralia. Well, this month on December 1st, the world paused for the 30th anniversary of World AIDS Day. World AIDS Day was started by the World Health Organization and first observed on December 1st, 1988. The purpose was to create a greater awareness of HIV as well as to commemorate those affected by the disease. Today, it's regarded as the longest-running disease awareness initiative of its kind in the history of public health. Our guest tonight is Ryan Olson. He's a technical advisor for the D.C.-based Palladium's USA-funded Health Policy Project. Ryan travels around the world doing HIV prevention education and has worked extensively with African countries. He'll provide us with a global perspective of the epidemic and share with us the latest statistics. It's all coming up next, right after your Outbeat Radio News for this Sunday, December 23rd, 2018. This is Greg Morali with your Outbeat Radio News for the week of December 23rd, 2018. Global HIV advocates plan to hold an alternative meeting in Mexico City to coincide with the International AIDS Conference planned for July of 2020 while organizers of that confab declined to move it out of the Bay Area. The International AIDS Society selected San Francisco and Oakland as joint host cities for the AIDS 2020 conference in an effort to highlight San Francisco's pioneering role in the response to the epidemic, as well as the ongoing disparities between the two sides of the Bay. Opponents cite Bay Area's high cost and logistical difficulties, but have mainly focused on the United States' exclusion of key affected populations, which they say has worsened under the Trump administration. George Ayala, executive director of Impact Global Action for Gay Men's Health and Rights, which is headquartered in Oakland, said, quote, It is irresponsible to put on an event of this size in a country that is inhospitable to people most affected by HIV and AIDS. The decision to move ahead with the conference in the U.S. suggests a willingness to mainstream HIV actors to tolerate discrimination against people from Muslim, African, Caribbean, and Latin American countries and against people who use drugs, sex workers, and transgender people, end quote. IS organizers continue to maintain that the Bay Area is an appropriate location for the conference. And some in the LGBTQ media are calling our next story nothing short of a Christmas miracle. According to the Washington Post, Senator Orrin Hatch, the conservative Republican Mormon from Utah, who once said that letting gay people teach children would be like letting Nazis do so, called for the protection of LGBTQ Americans from, quote, invidious discrimination, end quote, in his farewell speech to the U.S. Senate. Hatch, who was retiring after seven terms, that's 42 years, as a senator from Utah said, such protections can coexist with religious liberty in a pluralistic society. He added, quote, religious liberty is a fundamental freedom. It deserves the very highest protections our country can provide. At the same time, it is also important to take into account the interests of others as well, especially those of our LGBTQ brothers and sisters. Pluralism shows us a better way. It shows us that protecting religious liberty and preserving the rights of LGBTQ individuals are not mutually exclusive, end quote. And finally, don't forget, registration is now underway for LGBT classes happening this spring. First is the LGBT Studies Program at Napa Valley College. Classes start on Thursday, January 17th. You can register now at napavalley.edu. And at Santa Rosa JC this spring, you can explore LGBT history through a community education class. It starts on March 30th, and you can register now at communityed.santarosa.edu. 
For a calendar of LGBT events happening here in the North Bay, go to GaySonoma.com. And for all the LGBT news headlines we're following, go to our website at OutbeatNews.com. And from all of us on the Outbeat Radio News team, happy holidays. I'm Greg Morelia. AIDS was actually first identified in 1959, but not actually diagnosed in the United States until 1982. The following year, scientists identified the virus that causes AIDS and named it HIV for Human Immunodeficiency Virus. Today, 36.9 million people currently live with HIV around the world. 77.3 million people have become infected, and 35.4 million have died from AIDS-related illnesses. 1.15 million people are living with HIV in the U.S. That's the highest population of those with HIV in the developed world. Estimates range between 1 in 7 to 1 in 4 people who are living with HIV and don't know they have it. It can take up to 10 years after an exposure for symptoms to appear, so that's why testing is extremely important. The CDC recommends that everyone between 13 and 64 gets tested at least once. About 59% of those living with HIV have access to treatment. In 2012, the first drug to prevent HIV, Truvada, was approved by the FDA. Last year, 1.8 million people worldwide became infected with HIV. 8,000 of those people were living in the U.S. Tragically, 1 million people died from the disease last year. So that's why this year's theme is Know Your Status. My name is Allison Gertz. My friends call me Allie. I live in New York. I'm 23 years old, and I have AIDS. Today is the 30th anniversary of World AIDS Day. We have come a long way from the fear, stigma, and ignorance that defined the HIV epidemic in the 1980s. My illness was traced back to one sexual encounter that I had seven years ago. I was 16 years old and in love with an older man. This man had since died of AIDS, something that I'd been unaware of all these years. AIDS was not an issue at that time. Since the beginning of the epidemic, more than 70 million people have acquired HIV, and 35 million people have died of AIDS-related illnesses. But science and global solidarity have helped us turn the tide on the epidemic. It was here at the United Nations that the urgency of a global response to the AIDS epidemic was uniquely recognized on October 20th, 1987. For the first time in history, a health issue is discussed on the floor of the General Assembly. Let us not underestimate the challenge before us. A worldwide effort will be required to stop AIDS. And yet we can, we must win this global war. New infections have dropped by almost half since 1996, and AIDS-related deaths are down by more than half since 2004. But HIV is not over. Of the 37 million people estimated to be living with HIV, 75% know their status, and 60% are being treated. That's an improvement, but it's not good enough. In the Sustainable Development Goals, the world has committed to ending the AIDS epidemic by 2030. To achieve that target, 
We're calling on everyone at risk of HIV to know their status. Nearly a million people still die every year from HIV because they don't know they have HIV and are not treated or they're treated too late. But today, we have better tools than ever before to diagnose and treat HIV. WHO recommends HIV self-testing, which is especially important for reaching the most vulnerable people. Ultimately, the best way to ensure everyone can get the health services they need for HIV is for every country to progress towards universal health coverage. No one should get sick and die from HIV just because they are poor. Health for all means HIV testing for everyone at risk. This World AIDS Day, know your status. I thank you. Our guest tonight is Ryan Olson. He's a technical advisor at the Washington, D.C.-based organization Palladium and their USA-funded Health Policy Plus project. He's a graduate of the Clinton School of Public Service, and for the last seven years, Ryan has been traveling around the world providing a variety of trainings related to HIV prevention. He spent a large amount of time in African countries, and he's here to share a global perspective on the HIV epidemic. Ryan, welcome back to the show. Thank you very much. I'm glad to be back. Well, I'm excited to get caught up with you and to hear about the work you're doing, particularly in Africa. But first, tell us about Palladium and what drew you to HIV prevention work. Yeah, I uh, work for an organization called Palladium under a USAID-funded project called the Health Policy Plus Project. And for the last seven years under HPP, I have been going around the world and working with governments, implementing partners of the U.S. government, as well as local civil society organizations to address the legal and policy arena uh, as it relates to HIV and AIDS, but particularly as it relates to uh, what the international HIV world considers key populations who are men who have sex with men, transgender women, people who inject drugs, as well as sex workers. And so I've done everything from working at the local level where I helped develop a discrimination reporting system for people in the country of Ghana who are being kicked out of their homes or denied medical services due to the fact that they were either HIV positive or a key population. Um, I've also worked with a regional organization uh, throughout sub-Saharan Africa to develop a policy advocacy guide to assist local civil society organizations working with the LGBTI community to help them navigate and advocate for the rights of their communities. And I've also worked at the global level where I've designed and delivered a, a gender and sexual diversity training, which has been delivered to over 5,000 people in 40 countries and adapted to five country contexts as well as online. So I've had the great opportunity to do this uh, in a number of capacities, and it's, uh, it's been a really great honor to be able to do this type of work in a wide variety of places throughout the world. Wow. And certainly there's enough work to keep you busy for many more years to come. And we'll hope that that funding continues. But how, what, what drew you to work with HIV and the AIDS crisis and really sort of all the ancillary issues that go with that? 
Um, well, I started off my uh, career really working as a LGBTI human rights activist uh, back in college all the way in 2002 uh, and really became passionate about uh, ensuring that all people had access to their rights um, as gender and sexual minorities. And so throughout my course of my career, I've had the opportunity to work at the national level, at the local level, and even at the international level, working at the United Nations uh, one year to address uh, the rights of sexual ori- uh, based on sexual orientation and gender identity, SOGI. And so as I was looking to for jobs when I graduated from grad school, I was really looking for an organization that would allow me to continue supporting uh, groups who were addressing these issues at an international level. And I happened to stumble into the field of uh, international development uh, under the work of HIV, which has really impacted um, disproportionately uh, the LGBT community throughout the world. And Mm -hmm. so I was able to leverage my human rights experience and expertise and bring it to the field of HIV um, to help shift and shape the way in which people thought about working with gender and sexual minorities. Wow. Well, just, you know, hearing you talk about it caused me to think back to when the crisis first emerged. I guess I'll admit this. I was just graduating high school back in 1981 and was just beginning to date. Um, I wasn't out, but I knew who I was. And I clearly remember that article that came up about this strange disease that had emerged. And it was terrifying, very, very terrifying. And there was no information about it. Now, you're a lot younger than I am. But talk about what you remember uh, about HIV and how that impacted you when you began to realize who you were and came out. Yeah, well, uh, I really didn't have quite of an awareness of HIV until I did start to come out and started doing advocacy work for the community probably around when I was 18 or 19 in college. And uh, it was, a, at the time, a peripheral issue, but something I was certainly aware of. Um, and the typical uh, explanation for uh, health prevent health was just prevention, and so the typical messaging around using a condom, lube, all of that stuff. But I didn't really have a comprehensive uh, knowledge until I actually really got into the field uh, when I started this job. With that said, though, I uh, first really was impacted by HIV when I was actually in college and I had this uh, little old doctor who I had visited because I was feeling a little upset uh, and she looked at me in the eyes and told me, you have HIV. And before even doing any tests or or, uh, trying to understand my symptoms further, she just declared that I was positive and so... Um, I got the test, I went home and started contemplating what it might mean. And then 24 hours later, this is in what, 2005, uh, she called me and said, your, um, your test is negative, but then scared me even further by proclaiming, but we don't know and we won't know for three more months. So, cause I, I'm pretty sure you're positive. And so for that whole semester, fall of 2005, I was, under, I was ter- terrified <laughs> of what it might mean. And then um, I tested again and was uh, negative. Um, but that, that experience really drove home a very um, scary but enlightening 
perspective for me on appreciating HIV as a something that impacts our community and is something that we can't ignore or stigmatize because it really could be anyone. Uh, and we have to support one another in our lives and throughout the world. What an irresponsible, and that's a mild <laughs> word. I, I can't even fathom that. Right? Why would, why would somebody do that? I can't. I think she was stereotyping me a little bit, but the um, and I'm I've been I get tested every three to six months uh, because of that because uh, it just so frightened me. Um, but uh, yeah, some of this is one of the things that does happen all over the world is uh, healthcare provider stigma and discrimination towards people who come into the um, hospitals. And you can imagine a person who actually is HIV positive in the way that that, that they would have been treated. Um, so, Yes. And, and before I share my own story about that, I just need to know, I mean, did this experience really fuel your passion for the educational pieces around HIV? It's definitely... Uh, it was definitely something that helped fuel my passion for human rights um, and health, uh, including HIV, and is one of the things that I am constantly reminded of, given that I work in the field now. Just the, when we uh, do healthcare trainings for uh, people who work in the health industry on stigma and discrimination, this is a key story that I always come back to, and. Uh, I always have these moments of panic every three to six months <laughs> because of that one one incident. Incident. Wow. Well, you know, I, I can identify with that experience to a certain degree. Um, you know, if you've been a listener on this show, you know that I do HIV test counseling over at Face to Face one day a week, and I was inspired to do that largely because of taking a good friend of mine in for an HIV test about the same year that you had your experience. Um, and we went to the Berkeley Clinic, which is a very sterile, institutional, very cold kind of a place. And at that time, you got tested and then you had to wait two weeks. So you got your results in, what, you said 24 hours? Yeah. <laughs> well, this one, you know, he had to wait for two weeks. And when I took him back there for his results, it was it was the worst experience. And he ended up testing positive. Um, wow. And was told, and I guess there was some level of compassion there, but it really wasn't, he was really left with not a whole lot of navigation afterwards and not a lot of, here's what you need to do next and we're going to care for you and step you through this process along the way. And I thought, if I ever have a chance to be able to make that horrible experience more compassionate and caring, I'm going to do it. Um, and every time I do a test, I really think about that, as that, that possibility and I would never, ever uh, just leave someone hanging or, or make a flippant statement like that doctor did with you. That's terrible. <laughs> I know. <laughs> well, we have made some, some pretty significant gains in this country around slowing um, new infections, at least in some populations. But that is absolutely not the case in other parts of the world, especially in countries in Africa. And, and you've had a chance really to go all over Africa and see it firsthand. Talk about some of the places you've been to uh, in that continent. Yeah, you're absolutely right that uh, we have made a number of gains in the world. This is a really important uh, 
aspect of the global advocacy and work that's being done by multiple donor agencies and countries like ours. We have PEPFAR, which funds a majority of the world's HIV programming and services that was started under the Bush administration. But this is also Cohen. This also coincides with funding from uh, the Global Fund as well as UNAIDS itself. Um, we uh, the disease primarily it was a heterosexual disease that took place uh, several years ago and has drastically been reduced now that people throughout the world and particularly in the uh, sub-Saharan Africa are getting fair and and equitable access to AR. Um, people are being tested more often they're, and therefore getting treatment and staying on treatment, which is the global goals uh, of 90-90-90. 90 percent of people getting tested, of the people being testing positive, 90 percent getting on drugs. And then of those people on drugs, 90 percent of people actually staying on them to suppress their viral loads. Now, you said and that so, this is largely a heterosexual problem? It was, it was, and still is a heterosexual uh, thing. Um, but a, with that said, a recent UNAIDS study that came out um, just earlier this year um, cited that approximately forty-nine percent of all new infections were actually amongst key populations. And just to remind you, key populations were men who have sex with men, transgender women, people who inject drugs, as well as sex workers. Uh, and so we can see from this statistic that uh, while the, amongst the general population, the, the epidemic is decreasing, we still have static numbers uh, amongst key population. And in some country contexts, um, the risks are even growing. And that actually includes the United States, where uh, we have been able to um, suppress the virus in this country for the most part. However, um, in recent years, particularly amongst young gay men and young gay men of color, uh, the HIV rates in this country are going up. Um, so uh, around the world, it's been a, a great success story, if you will, because uh, PEPFAR itself has saved millions of lives. And one of the things that I am getting to focus on specifically is those key populations, people who continue to face violent forms of stigma and discrimination, people who are being denied health care services, being arbitrarily arrested by the police, blackmailed, um, and forced underground, which in an HIV and health circumstance uh, prevents them from really seeking out the services that they may need, especially if they're HIV positive. So the services they need are everything from getting tested to um, having ARVs to actually staying on their drugs, but also additional services that look for STIs and general health and wellness um, at large. So depression and psychosocial support are really critical to helping people thrive, uh, especially in these uh, marginalized communities. So th this is some of the work that I've gotten to do, and um, but specifically the issues that I'm addressing. Well, in Africa in particular, it's got to be especially challenging with all of the really aggressive anti-gay policy that's being implemented. Uh, this last month, we reported on Outbeat News about Tanzania, 
and it caught my eye when you said you had just been there. Uh, Tanzanian government announced a roundup of gay men where they were actually going to start hunting for people. What did you see? What was the environment there like? Yes, unfortunately, for the last uh, couple of years, Tanzania has been, in many ways, been going backwards when it comes to its uh, political uh, discussions and discourse on these issues. Um, but particularly, uh, they've just like in the U.S., how LGBT people were used as a political football for wavering sides. The current uh, administration in Tanzania has really spoken out against uh, LGBTI people and associated HIV programming with the LGBT community. Um, And so um, not just recently, but for the last two or three years, actually, uh, they have closed down or made it illegal to form LGBT organizations. They have um, limited the HIV services, including testing and treatment uh, for the community organizations that offered these health services. And they've really clamped down on the ability to be public and open about who you are. And so even while I was there um, just a couple months ago in late August, um, it was clear that uh, the government was creating this hostile environment for people to be outspoken about who they are. I was able to work with some local civil society organizations and member members of the LGBT community, and they described this hostile environment as being very limiting to their ability to be visible, to congregate together, as well as to receive health services. In fact, while I was there uh, in Zanzibar, which is known to be much more conservative than the rest of the country. There were over 35 people arrested because they simply attended a sexual health uh, conference that was also inclusive of LGBT people. Um, While I was, yeah, and so that definitely made it a little more frightening as someone who is delivering a gender and sexual diversity training to a number of healthcare professionals there. Um, But with that said, um, after I left, it was, uh, it, it became even more harsh uh, from this recent minister's uh, call to identify and turn in any and all LGBT people in the country. Hmm. Did you feel threatened while you were there? I'll be honest, I was a little nervous, but, you know, I've been all over the world in these contexts and – Unfortunately, fortunately, I because I'm an international person, because I go on behalf of a global organization, I have a little bit more protection um, than, say, someone who's from a local village or someone who is actually a, a country a person of that country, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Uh, let's just call it my white American Western privilege that uh, g- gives me a little bit more leeway, not to necessarily be out and about but I can go a little bit under the radar than in comparison to people who are from those countries. Well, it's sort of interesting that you're there doing the prevention work, the positive work, the ethical and moral work. And there are other members of the U.S., particularly uh, conservative Christian leaders who are there who are really advocating for these new laws and this tightening up. Um, we've read articles about that and the influence that these religious leaders have had in Uganda. What's your sense about that? Is all of this being fueled by people from the Christian community here in the U.S.? Um, Well, I will definitely say yes, in part, uh, with the understanding that um, what's unfortunate is that a lot of the 
legal landscapes that were created that uh, criminalize homosexuality actually emanate from the British that uh, when they uh, call it, uh, they brought over their laws when they were colonizing all these countries, which included uh, the penal codes which prohibit same-sex activities. Um, these laws uh, still exist in a number of country, uh, number of former, former British colonies, um, even though they may or may not be enforced. So these laws on the books actually are used to blackmail people, to arbitrarily arrest people, and only in some cases are prosecuted. But, they, but as a result of those legal those legal barriers, a lot of people do feel uh, emboldened to actually speak out against LGBT people and justify it as a part of their own culture. Mm-hmm. And then, so then you can imagine then when these evangelical leaders come in and start uh, spouting off uh, well documented, uh, unfounded. Uh, uh, unfounded perspectives that suggest that LGBT people should not only be arrested but murdered, and they continue to perpetuate this amongst their in-country peers, it's quite devastating. And yes, the U.S. evangelical movement has had a great impact on this. With that said, and this is something that I believe my in-country colleagues would also say, is that is as much as it's on the evangelicals coming over, we cannot forget that our African sisters, brothers, and others are also, uh, you know, people who are adopting these ideas, and they're they're free-thinking people themselves, <laughs> and so uh, we can't just look at the evangelicals as the only problem, but they are certainly a part of the problem. Mm-hmm. Certainly an inspiration. Yes, yes, exactly. So so based upon what you saw in Tanzania and the other countries that you've been to where there's been this type of government oppression and these overt actions to enforce old laws or be more aggressive about enforcing them anyway, you know, what's your take on how that's impacting the AIDS crisis there? Well, I think it's uh, quite clear that uh, because these laws are in place, because there's these social and political attitudes towards gender and sexual minorities, um, that it really does create a hostile environment that does not allow for people on the ground to actually be fully um, out about who they are. It creates a stigma both in within the community itself but also towards the community. And so it is much harder to both provide services specifically to the LGBT communities, but also for people to actually access services when they're being discriminated against. Um, So, yeah, it's it's really put a lot of pressure on the um, community. Um, I think the biggest thing is that with these laws, they're even prohibiting things like comprehensive sex ed. So HIV is something that you can prevent if you also know how to prevent it. But if people aren't given accurate information around how to protect themselves, then of course they're going to be at greater risk in addition to um, being violently treated by their peers and their um, country, um, country, fellow country citizens. Right. Mm -hmm. So um, it's just, uh, it's just, it, it is a impactful on the communities and it, puts um, people at risk because of the violence and stigma. I think what really astonishes me is that the government doesn't realize, it doesn't see the nexus between this health crisis that they are perpetuating 
and this policy? Well, this is the good thing is that the reason we – so one of the big reasons why I got into this field away from human rights, not that it's uh, separate, but uh, human rights are things that a lot of government officials in around the world will gloss over and say, yeah, yeah, yeah. But when you can tie it to a public health crisis, it um, helps to make a case for why there should be more funding and support services for these uh, marginalized communities. So um, it's a give and take. There's still hostilities, but hopefully through this health approach, uh, we can create a better enabling environment for people to be able to access access the health and services that they are deserving of. Hmm. Well, I, I certainly hope that the U.S. continues to stay involved because we are a global society. People travel, people move. And so we can we can be proud of the level of suppression that we've achieved here in this country. But if we don't work to suppress the virus around the world, the threat to us remains because people don't just stay here in the U.S. They engage with people from around the world. And so it just makes sense that we would be involved and continue to work to fight it around the world and, and help pay for that. Mm-hmm. I agree. Crazy. Well, and just to add, I read an article recently. I forget which what the source is, but it was uh, articulating how the HIV epidemic is not is far from over, and that our our lack of our attention to it is actually dangerous because we're saying, oh, well, things are going down. We have better drugs like PrEP, all that stuff. And so people don't need to worry as much. But the thing is that uh, because of all of these drugs and different services, people are feeling more laxed uh, and therefore engaging in more risky behavior. And there is a high possibility that the epidemic will actually grow in size and that HIV itself may evolve or uh, shift to the point where it's actually our current drugs won't actually be able to treat it anymore. And so this is actually a looming threat if we don't actually tackle it head on right now and fund it until the very last person uh, with HIV is living on this earth. Seriously, it's, it's not over. Well, to give our listeners a sense of just how big this problem really is, I read a statistic uh, that was published on social media on World AIDS Day that talked about one in four people who are infected with HIV don't know they have it. 25% are out there, and we're talking about millions of people. And so not getting tested, and we've had that message on this show for a long time, is really a danger as well. But this problem is, as you mentioned, still a critical problem here in the U.S. It's not just African countries that we need to be concerned about, right? Oh, I agree. It's all throughout the world, and um, it's important that people recognize that this is still amongst us. Um, thank God you, you can live a more meaningful life with it, uh, but that doesn't mean it's it's gone. It's right. definitely around us. Well, you're certainly right about that. I mean, the fact that one million people just last year died from AIDS-related illnesses is proof positive that the virus is still a, a life-threatening problem. Well, I want to talk next about populations most at risk here in the United States. But first, we're going to take a music break. So stay with us. We'll be right back. I really can't stay. But baby, it's cold outside. I've got to go away. But baby, it's cold outside. This evening has been. Been hoping you'd so drop very nice. I'll hold your 
just like My mother will start to worry Beautiful once And father will be pacing the floor Listen to the fireplace roar Really I'd better hurry Beautiful, please don't But maybe just a half a drink more Put some records on while I pour Neighbors might Baby, it's bad out there. Say what's in this tree? No caps to be had out there. I wish I knew how. Eyes are like stars now. The spell. I'll take your hat. Your hair looks well. Ought to say no, no, no. Mind if I move in? At least I'm gonna say that I tried. What's the sense in her? My pride. I really can't stay Baby, don't hold out Ah, oh, but it's cold outside Baby, it's cold outside our own Bobby Joe Valentine with Baby It's Cold Outside. If you're just joining us, you're listening to Outbeat News in Depth here on KRCB-FM. I'm Greg Moralia, and tonight we are honoring the 30th anniversary of World AIDS Day. Our guest tonight is Ryan Olson. He's a technical advisor with Palladium's USA-funded Health Policy Plus project. So you mentioned this earlier in our discussion about the populations here in the U.S. who are seeing rises in the number of new infections. 
And I think the statistic that I saw recently was young people of color, 13 to 24 years of age, are the population most at risk for rises in new infections. Talk more about what your perspective is. Why is that happening? Well, I just I, I think it really has a lot to do with uh, the prevention messages that are getting out. I don't think we talk about it enough in our community or in the country. I don't think we talk about the various risk factors that go into the contraction of HIV as well as its uh, spread. Um, the other piece is that there's still quite a lot of stigma and discrimination around being HIV positive as well as being an LGBT person. Uh, and this uh, can sometimes happen within communities of color themselves. So uh, there's just a lot of risk out there. Uh, in addition, because of some of our technological advances like PrEP, I think people feel that be, if they're on PrEP or they you know, have been taking care of themselves for a while, that they're going to be fine. But they don't necessarily think about the fact that... Uh, it's it's prep is a very new drug and not everyone is on it and uh it doesn't mean you shouldn't also take additional precautions such as using a condom and lubricants right so there's a combination of things that are um making it increase in this country i believe and a lot of those populations that are being impacted with new infections are in the south so you don't have to think too hard to start to realize why that is communities of color in the bible belt there's religion again that's playing a role in this. I have to believe that a lot of it is just a lot of underground sexual activity where people are not wanting to admit who they are. They don't associate as being gay. And so therefore, if I'm not gay, then I can't get HIV. Do you see that mentality playing out? I think that there's a part of that for sure. I think that I, I yes, I definitely see that. I think it's also just about awareness about HIV and its transmission. So when I was in Nigeria a couple months ago, one of the things that we had there was that holding a condom in your purse would be something that would get sex workers arrested just for having a condom. And then the idea of getting pregnant was uh, vaginal intercourse, right? So a lot of uh, young people in that country really think uh, about sex as they, – they weren't educated about anal sex, right, or the mm -hmm. risk factors there. So they would engage in anal sex to avoid HIV, but then they weren't given that proper information that that's actually a, risk factor, a higher risk factor. And so um, similar to that and in other countries around the world, I'm certain that a lot of people just don't think about the risk factors, especially if you're 13 through 23. Uh, that's not necessarily at the, f at the front of your mind. And if you're a part of a broader community that is uh, that may express homophobia or stigma or discrimination, then you're less likely to educate yourself specifically on issues facing this the LGBT community or having sexual relationships with the same sex. Mm -hmm. Well, a lot of the marketing, frankly, has been targeted very specifically at gay men. You can open up you know, advocate or out or any of the, the gay magazines, and you'll see a dozen ads for different um, HIV treatment drugs as well as Truvada. It's only been just recently that I've started to see some commercials on television targeting more mainstream audiences. And they have had some folks of color in there represented, so hopefully people will see themselves. But if those, if the marketing and the information doesn't get into those regions of the country where the infections are the greatest, I just don't see how it's going to change. Yeah, well, we'll see. I'm not sure. Um, but 
uh, we can only hope. Well, let's talk about this getting to zero campaign. It's a noble goal for sure. It's certainly one that um, here in Sonoma County that we're focused on through face-to-face. San Francisco has had a goal of on getting to zero. If you were in charge of getting to zero in the United States, I'm going to put you on the spot here a little bit. What do you think it's going to take to achieve that? I really think that people need much more of a comprehensive understanding of sexuality itself. Uh, I think we still live in a puritanical society, which doesn't like to talk about one of the things that actually impacts every single person, and that's sex. Um, And this is a huge part of my own advocacy or what's behind my own advocacy, and that is my belief that our understanding our sexualities and our relationships with one another in a comprehensive fashion actually helps us to be better or more cognizant of um, who we are in our actions. And so right now we don't have sex education courses in all of the states throughout the country. So people aren't learning about anal sex. They aren't learning about the risk factors of HIV, but they're also not learning about the pleasures of sexuality and all the comprehensive aspects that goes into these spaces. So I think we need to talk about it more, not less, and that not just sexuality, but also HIV itself. I think every person needs to be able to know what it's what it is and what the risk factors are. And then finally, I do believe that people just need to know their status. So getting tested and then um, continuing to know their status. And if they are HIV positive, making sure that they're on ARTs as well as uh, staying on them. So. Right. Well, that's really going to be at least the mechanical pieces of suppressing the virus. It's about treatment and prevention and treatment as prevention. And just looking at the total amount of virus and suppressing it where it can't be transmitted. Mm -hmm. That's much easier said than done. Uh, I've got to imagine that the current presidential administration has not been helping this problem much. I've read articles about funding being cut for AIDS research and AIDS education uh, outside the U.S. From your perspective, what's going on there? Yes, there's uh, somewhat of a hostility still towards these issues, especially from this administration. Uh, The CDC has had its funding cut drastically, unfortunately, which does not allow for this work to continue. Um, the good news as of yesterday was that the administration officially is signing on to continue PEPFAR, or, um, which is our, our national response to HIV globally. And so um, that is good that, we're being fu- that PEPFAR is being funded again. However, uh, there's a caveat that uh, $100 million or so uh, needs to specifically be directed towards faith-based organizations. Now, I don't want to knock faith-based organizations because Vice President Pence is very much for those. Um, But the issue is what will be their approaches? What will be how they design and implement programs that are for people living with HIV and prevention um, efforts? Will these include... Uh, LGBT people, sex workers, people who inject drugs, the people who are most at risk of HIV, or and how? What will those approaches look like? Will they be affirming of these people, or will they carry on um, 
approaches that actually may be further stigmatizing to the communities, driving them further underground and exacerbating the epidemic. So, Like uh, abstinence only. Like abstinence only education, which is antithetical and ignores the evidence base that has been developed uh, to actually address these issues. So that is a looming potential threat. We have to see what they do. Um, It's quite unfortunate, I have to be honest. But I also have to be honest that uh, I I would hope that a faith-based organization with a values-driven mission would be uh, compassionate, caring, and understanding and continue doing work based on an evidence base. Um, but we'll see. We'll see. Yeah, I, I wish I could share your optimism. Um, when I hear you talk about the funding going towards um, religious organizations, the first thing that comes to mind after abstinence-only education is conversion therapy to help people as a way to prevent the spread of HIV. I can see that happening. And, of course, there's nothing more harmful than that. Ugh. Well, yeah, I agree. And um, unfortunately, uh, what we know of in the United States in terms of conversion therapy, we know that it's the science behind it proves it doesn't help. It actually harms people. Unfortunately, though, there's many different ways in which this is exacerbated from a religious or cultural perspective throughout the world. Um, and this is happening with or without the faith-based, faith-based organizations that are coming in from the U.S. But I know that it is also something that people deal with and how, or how they deal with it rather than affirming people who are LGBT. Mm-hmm. Well, the fight against this crisis started with a small grassroots organization, you know, many within our own community. And, and we were taking care of our own for many, many, many years early into the crisis. And as the government pulls away, it sort of seems like the reliance on those grassroots organizations is going to increase. How can listeners support the work that you're doing abroad? Um, I think they can continue to uh, share and advocate to Congress itself to continue to fund work um, that specifically supports civil society organizations on the ground who are working with LGBT people and are who are LGBT-led themselves. I think Congress and our, our country leaders need to hear that message repeatedly. Um, so we need to do that. We also need to support civil society organizations um, both on the ground in, in countries around the world, but also even some of our international civil society organizations that are doing advocacy work here in the U.S. Um, they need to be better supported. Organizations like Out, Outright International, um, as well as a few others. So uh, just something to think about on how they can support Great. if they would like. Write your congressperson. Yeah. <laughs> there you go. So for you, on as you contemplate and reflect on World AIDS Day, what are some action items you would recommend to listeners to acknowledge World AIDS Day, but also if donating money isn't a possibility, what is someone what are some things people can do? First off, I think awareness matters, not only educating yourself on what it what it is, but how to you know, make sure you are tested and that you are um, aware of your own status. I think um, be cognizant of the fact that this is a global epidemic and that there are millions of people around the world living with HIV and that it's not something that we can ignore, but it has to be something that we face head on. Um, I think 
in our day to day, if you're on Grinder or a social media app and you have anti-HIV stigma, you should be challenging that along with all the other crap that happens in the world like racism and sexism and homophobia. We also have to really um, destigmatize broadly in our communities uh, HIV and understand that it could be anyone. Uh, we all are at risk. And when somebody does uh, come forward as being positive, that we need to be able to support uh, that person, come around them, and to love them as we would love a sister, brother, or other, you know. So continuing to be mindful that... Uh, we exist in this world and not ignoring it, I think is the biggest uh, thing that can be done. Great. Well, getting to zero also means getting to zero stigma. And that's a whole other conversation for another show. But we do have resources locally here where you can go and get tested for free. You can do it confidentially or anonymously at Face to Face Tuesday through Friday from 9 a.m. to 4.30 p.m. They're right at 873 2nd Street. It's a very sex-positive place, and there is no excuse for people not to go and get tested. And if, you're, and if you're really bothered or worried about what happens in one of those testing sessions, we'll put a link on our website to a show we did earlier this year where we actually pulled the curtain back on a whole testing session. And you can hear it from start to finish, a real testing session, so that you know exactly what to expect when you walk in the door. So just go to OutbeatNews.com, click on show notes at the top of the page, and we'll have a link for you to that show. We've been talking with Ryan Olson. He's a technical advisor with Palladium's USA-funded Health Policy Plus Project. Thank you so much for all the work you're doing around the country and for sharing all the information with us uh, as we remember the 30th anniversary of World AIDS Day. Thank you so much. More than one million Americans are living with HIV. One in seven doesn't even know that they're infected. This World AIDS Day, know your status and get tested. Get tested. Get tested. If you're HIV positive, get treated. Get treated. Get treated. Let's end AIDS together. Let's end AIDS together. Let's end AIDS all together. There are more than 2,000 people living with HIV and AIDS in Sonoma County. 500 of them don't know they have it, so neither do their partners. If you've ever suspected you've been exposed to HIV and want to know whether you're carrying the virus that could lead to AIDS, there's a place you can be tested for free, confidentially, and anonymously with results in just 20 minutes. Call face-to-face at 544-1581 or visit f2f.org. We want you to know your status. And that brings us to the end of our hour. From all of us here on Outbeat Radio, we wish you a peaceful and joyous holiday season. Tune in next Sunday night for a special Outbeat Extra. Your Outbeat Radio team is looking back at 2018 and sharing our favorite segments from each of our shows. That's at 8 p.m. and only here on KRCB-FM Radio 91. In the meantime, Merry Christmas and thanks for spending your Sunday night with us.
Outbeat News in Depth is hosted and produced by Greg Moralia exclusively for KRCB Radio. Podcasts of our programs are available for on-demand play on our website at outbeatnews.com and on iTunes, TuneIn, Google Play, and Stitcher. Follow us on Facebook and Twitter for updates from Outbeat Radio News all month long. I'd love to change the world, but I don't know what to do. So I give it up to Broken down and tired of living life on the merry-go-round. And you can't find a fighter, but I see it in you, so we gon' walk it out. Move mountains, we gon' walk it out and move mountains. Silence is a quiet And it feels like it's getting hard to breathe And I know you feel like dying But I promise we would take the world to its feet Move I won't take Bring it to its feet That we have each other
A thousand times again 